invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll be completing this pericope, looking at verses 37 to 42. And we can call this message, Too Tired to Pray. Mark 14, 37 to 42. Now, any good narrative, any good story will have a climax in it. And it's usually uh, in the last, the last section or the last part of the story. And, you know, those of you who are into sports, you know, this, is, this can be equated with the last quarter of a football game or perhaps the ninth inning of a baseball game. There's no more time. Once you get into this final segment, there's no more time for lollygagging. There's no more time for putzing around in anything but high gear. It's time to get serious and to get to work. And that moment has arrived for the Lord and for his disciples. His hour has come. The hour is a time that he has been preparing them for, as well as himself, uh, for the last few weeks and especially the last few hours as he's been praying. And we, we see, we will see here that he is ready to embrace his hour. He is ready to go to the cross. But the question is, is are his disciples, have they been preparing themselves? Are they ready for, what, for, for the tsunami that is about to hit them? Let's see, let's see if they are preparing with themselves. Let's see if they are ready. We can divide our text into three headings. The first, in verse 37, will be the fatigue of the disciples. The fatigue. And then we will see their failure in verses 38 to the first half of 41. And then the last half of 41, and, for, and then verse 42 will be the finale. The fatigue, the failure, the finale. Mark writes, picking up from where we were last week, and he, being Jesus, came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came, a, he came the third time and said to him, are you, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We will see in verse 37 the fatigue of the disciples. I'll remind you that Jesus had left Peter, James, and John somewhere inside the perimeter of the Garden of Gethsemane before he went a short distance to pray. Verse 35 
says that he went a little beyond them. The, the, the other eight are at the entrance to this privately owned garden. Peter, James, and John are a little ways inside. Jesus is a little ways beyond them, perhaps in the epicenter or, or in the far recesses of this garden. But it's important to note that Peter, James, and John are not that far away from him. And this is why that's important. What we saw last week in verses 32 to 36, what, what we saw, they saw. They saw him. They heard him. They, remember Peter says in 1 Peter 5.1 that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. They were right next to him when verse 33 says he became very distressed and troubled. They were right with him. They were perhaps even beside him when he said in verse 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And then he only goes, uh, as Luke tells us, a stone's throw away. I, I was curious how far that is. I, I googled it. Google says it's it's 20 to 100 feet. It's probably a stone throw is probably 20 feet if I'm throwing it. It's probably 100 feet if if a man like Charlie is throwing it. But they're not that far, so they could perhaps still see him, but they can definitely hear him in agony as he prayed. And I also want to remind you, I must remind you, that what they saw and what they heard, they had never heard and seen in, in him before. They had never seen and heard him like this, throwing himself and prostrating himself down on the ground and pouring out his soul in agonizing, not, not uplifting pious prayer, but agonizing, heartfelt prayer. They had never seen him distressed to the point where his capillaries in his brow ruptured and hemorrhaged that blood is coming out of his sweat ducts. You would think that seeing him like this, that hearing him like this would have compelled these three men to feel the gravity, uh, the seriousness of the moment and that they would rightly commit themselves. However late it is, however wearied and fatigued they are, you would think that they would commit themselves to carry out his charge to watch and to pray. You would think, right? Well, Jesus now interrupts his time of prayer, his time of urgent, fervent, much-needed, heartfelt prayer. And like a good shepherd, he stops what he's doing. He puts aside what's on his plate, though it's very important, and he takes a moment to check on his men to see how they were doing. Verse 37 says that he found them. He came and found them sleeping. Fatigue has overcome them. Now the truth is, is fatigue has, has affected them all. Jesus included. They, they are all feeling the lateness of the hour, but not all of them are sleeping. Jesus is praying as he needed to. He needed to be in prayer because his, the, the, the clock is ticking and his time to which he could go before the Father and be steeled and settled for what's coming, that time is running out. The clock is ticking. 
And so he went and prayed. And we saw last week his, his human will wrestled with his divine will. And we saw the divine will triumph. We saw him steal himself. We saw him settled, uh, as we will see also this week, he is steeled and settled for his coming trial. That's why he prayed, beloved. That's also why he told his men, his disciples, to pray. Because they needed to be steeled. They needed to be reinforced. They needed to be girded for the tsunami that was about to hit them. They were about to have a trial of their own. And Cliff may ask their trial, Aaron, you've been preaching about Jesus' hour it's, it's his hour that I could, I saw it on your face, Cliff. I know you were thinking this. This is Jesus's hour. Jesus's hour is the one spoken of in the scriptures. It's his hour. What, what does his hour have to do with them? Well, beloved, just prior to this in Luke's account, Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus had told Peter, behold, which has the, has the effect of look, listen to me, listen up. Uh, uh, behold, Satan has demanded permission because he had to. He has demanded the right, the grounds, the opportunity to sift you. And the you, though he is speaking to Peter, the you is plural. So it's not just Peter, it's, the, it's all 12. Peter, Satan wants you all. He wants to sift you all he wants to take his his scythe like a like a farmer and cut you low just like job he wants all the king's men and it wasn't to put humpty together again he wants to do to them he wants to destroy their faith destroy their, if, uh, destroy their lives, destroy their circumstances with the effect of destroying their faith. That's what we saw in the example of, of Job. And to this end, I think it would be helpful to, to remind ourselves what the Bible says about Satan. Because, beloved, there are, there are two extremes, and neither are good. Both are bad. The first extreme, uh, as far as our understanding or what we, what we should think about Satan is to elevate him too highly. To elevate him higher than he is. To attribute to him so much power and to bring him up to the level of God that he, is, uh, that he appears to be, that we might reckon him to be an equal with God. Uh, the yang to God's yin, as it were. That's a, uh, you, you will see that concept of, of equal light and equal darkness in, uh, in Buddhism or, or many Eastern religions that's one extreme is to bring up bring satan up higher than he deserves to be the other extreme is to put him too low than he needs to be to to put him down so low to think to render him in your in our minds powerless to think of him nothing more than a silly halloween costume with a pitchfork and devil's uh, devil ears or horns and a forked tongue to reduce him in our minds to nothing more than a nuisance that we can just in our own strength decree and declare to be gone. To, to chalk him up as a myth 
or an allegory is a fairy tale designed to scare real children. Has anyone ever heard that the devil, that Satan is not a, is not a real being? Anyone ever been told that? Well, there, you'd be surprised. There are a lot of Christians, even in the church out there, who think he is just a mythical figure. He's real. The Bible treats him as if he's real. Jesus spoke to him as if he's real. Jesus called him the prince or the ruler of this world, John sixteen eleven. Paul called him the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In Ephesians 2, 2, Paul also calls him the ruler of the air. 2 Timothy 2, 26 says he ensnares and captures people to do his will. And as we see with Job's children, he can take life. He can cause natural disasters. He can act through people and governments. As with Job's body, Satan can take health. The Gospels show clearly show that he can afflict people because he has an army. He has many minions, many demons through whom he can act. And even with Judas, even with the one coming on the scene in the next text, we can see that he can even personally indwell and personally invoke evil acts. So he is powerful. Don't lift him up too high and give him too much power, but don't put him down so low that he's nothing to sneeze at. His, he, he is powerful. He has a malicious intent, and that is to destroy our faith. John Piper puts it like this. We can imagine Satan as having a big sieve with jagged edged wires forming a mesh with holes shaped like faithless men and women. And what he aims to do, he throws people into this sieve and he shakes them around over its jagged edges until they are so torn and bloodied and weak and desperate that they let go of their faith and they fall through those faithless holes as faithless people. But faith cannot fall through the mesh because it's the wrong shape. Piper says, as long as the disciples hold on to their faith, trusting the power and the goodness of God for their hope, they will not fall through the mesh into Satan's hands. Therefore, the sifting of Peter and the disciples is Satan's effort to destroy their faith. That's a good picture, don't you think? So not only should the we could say the irregularity, the uniqueness of the hour, the uniqueness of Jesus' appearance and composure, not only should that have compelled the disciples to remain alert, to remain watchful, to remain prayerful, but so too should this very specific, very particular, very explicit warning that Satan was aiming to sift them. Satan was aiming to cut them low. They should have been praying. An immense trial is about to hit them, and they should have been alert and watchful and praying. This is, beloved, this is precisely why Jesus told them to watch and pray. I fear that some of us think that God's word is just 
God with an authority complex, and he likes telling us what to do just because he can. Maybe you've had a, a boss or a superver- supervisor who just told you to do this or to do that, not because it had any real inherent purpose, just, but just because he could boss you around. Our God is not like that. There is, there is, good, there is a good purpose and intent behind everything God says and behind everything God does. What were we looking at earlier this morning, Justin? God is loving and righteous in everything he does. All of his attributes come together as, as, as a single package every single time. He told them to watch and pray for a reason, and they should have been watching and praying. And beloved, when he came to check on them, as a good shepherd does, he should have found them watching and praying. Instead, what, what, he came and he found them what? Not doing their Sudoku, not on their phones. Found them, as verse 37 says, he came and found them sleeping. He found them utterly fatigued. And under normal circumstances, I think in our weakness, we can perhaps want to excuse their slumber. We can, we can relate to this. I mean, after all, Aaron, it's, it's late. It's been a long week. It's been a long day. They had a big meal, and they walked up a big hill. I'd be tired. In fact, I walked up. I walked up the Mount of Olives before uh, with Jennifer. I was tired. I was tired at walking up every mountain in Israel. I would have been tired. We we can perhaps want to excuse it, but the truth is, it is inexcusable. They should have been watching and praying. And that leads to our second heading: that this isn't merely a whoopsie. This isn't merely an oopsie. This is a failure on their part. Their negligence to watch and pray was a failure to do what Jesus instructed them to do. And beloved, it is a failure that is going to come back to bite them. We see the failure expounded as it, as it develops and, and unfolds in verses 38 uh, through the first half of verse 41. And he, Jesus, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not... Keep watch for one hour. Now, those of you with children know that there's a way that you can ask a question where it's not a question. That your goal is not to get information. This is, a, this is, a, this is an accusation. This is a reprimand. And, and, and the, the fact that this is a reprimand, it, it even comes across. It is felt in the way that Jesus addresses Peter. Does he use Peter's name? I mean, well, he does use Peter's name. Which name does he use when he addresses Peter? His old name or his new name? His old name. Simon. Simon. That's his, that's his old name. This is the name of his, uh, from his former life. This is the name that he had before he became a disciple. Now, it's not every time that he's addressed as Simon that we should... We should uh, see it as being a rebuke or a reprimand, but I believe it is here. I believe this is clearly a reprimand and a, and a shout-out or a, a, a pointing to his old way of life because Mark hasn't used Simon since chapter 3. In chapter 3, when, when Peter, along with 
the rest of the men were called as disciples, Jesus gave him the name Peter. Rock. Rocky, as sometimes we like to say. And throughout chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, it's Peter, 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 Peter. And then here it's Simon. How could you? I'm sure that was painful for him. And here, after he is so gallantly boasted of his strength, so arrogantly boasted of his strength, after Jesus has warned him of Satan's intention to sift him, to cut him low, Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, how could you be sleeping at such a time as this? Not are you sleeping, it's how could you be sleeping at a time like this? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? And that tells us approximately how long Jesus has been away praying at this first interval. Approximately an hour he has been praying. And we can't be dogmatic, but I'm going to assume that the second and third interval is going to approximately be an hour or two. One measly hour to watch and pray and to be valiant and to be diligent, to, to resemble even a small percentage of, of everything they have just boasted to be. And they fumble the ball. James and John who said, yes, we are able. We are able to drink the cup. Well, they're unable to keep their eyelids open. Peter, who boasted passionately, boasted with every, every fiber of his being, he, he planted the flag down and he stood his ground and he said, no, they may all fall away. I will not. I could not. Because I am strong. Boasted of great strength, strength enough to die for Christ, but beloved, he doesn't have the strength to keep his eyelids open and watch for one solitary hour. So rather than go on berating them, which he would have had every right to do, Jesus redirects them to what they need to be doing. He doesn't he doesn't dwell on the reprimand any longer than he needs to. He redirects. He goes back to positively instructing them what they should be doing, what they must be doing in this important hour. He says, keep, keep watching and praying. This is not a suggestion. This is not advice. This is an imperative. It's a command. Keep watching, and praying. Present tense, meaning keep watching. Go on watching. Persist watching. Persist praying. And like every, every, every class has one of these students who uh, the teacher has just told them that one of the most important things they need to be doing, and, and one student will go, what are we supposed to be doing again? What, what, to what end? Why, why are we doing this? Why is this important? Right? Well, Jesus tells them, 
that you may not come into temptation. Now, there's, there's two words for temptation in the Scripture. Uh, one has a neutral sense, and one has a negative sense. Uh, the neutral sense is the word that we typically have the word uh, temper with. Uh, it's the word uh, used for blacksmithing, and it's, it, it, can be, it can describe testing to prove what is good. And then there's another kind of testing, which is negative, uh, it is a test that is that has malicious intent. It is a it is it's like uh, uh, running up to someone as they're jogging and putting a stick in their path. You, it's, it's it is a test designed to see them fail. That's what this word is. Pray, and it, it could be translated: pray that you do not fall, that you do not fail in temptation. Earlier in the Lord's ministry, you remember that he taught his disciples how to pray. Matthew 6.11, remember? Lord's Prayer. I, I have a, a seminary professor who told us, this is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. This is the disciples' prayer. So every time someone calls it the Lord's Prayer, I think he just doesn't know why, but I think he just cries. So I should call it the Lord's Prayer, or the, the disciples' prayer, not the Lord. See, I just did it again. So it's, it's the disciples' prayer. Matthew 6.11, give us this day our daily bread. You know, we, we all know this, right? Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 11 starts with what? Give us next week, this day. Give us this day an abundance of, Give us this day a storehouse full. Give us this day three Costco carts full of bread. How's the prayer go? Daily bread. Kind of, tells, kind of gives us a clue as to how often we should be praying and what, how, our prayers should be, how we should be designing our prayers. Daily prayers. God, Jesus taught his disciples to be regularly, daily dependent on God. They, uh, uh, prayer was to be a regular, habitual pattern for their lives. He did not train these men to be these incredible, impressive titans of Christian spirituality and, and, um, and pious titans who take care of, 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 all the, uh, of all the mundane stuff and all the medium stuff, but, when it, but only when it comes to the real heavy stuff can they approach God. Only when it's the really important things can you, can you bother the boss, the guy upstairs. Only when they're really over their heads. Did Jesus teach them to pray like that? Jesus didn't teach them to be self-dependent. Jesus did not teach these men to be self-reliant, which, and sadly, that's what we see in them often, isn't it? Ever heard someone say, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? Anyone ever heard that? Do you know where it says in the Bible? It doesn't say in the Bible. Were you saying no where with a question mark? Okay, okay, yeah. No, the, the answer is nowhere. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God helps those who help themselves. Rather, Jesus taught them to be daily dependent on God. He taught them to depend regularly, habitually, 
again and again and again to depend on God as a way of life. Uh, he, he taught them to pray to God and to look at God and to treat God like he was a loving father who has an ongoing, persistent knowledge of his children and a concern for their children who knows their needs and who is always available. No father ever said to his kid or to his child, hey, it's Tuesday. You know, you, you know I'm not available on Tuesdays. You come to me on Thursday. No father does that. And an integral part of this regular daily pattern of prayer was protection from the evil one. A regular part of that regular, uh, an, an integral part of that regular prayer, something that he had taught them to pray again and again and again and to never forget to pray is, Lord, protect me from evil. Protect me from the evil one. Protection from Satan. Protection from his schemes. Protection from sin. So not only have they fumbled the ball by being men who don't pray, right after Jesus has explicitly told them that Satan was looking, aiming, desiring to sift them, they've double fumbled. Is that a thing? Double fumbled. They have fumbled egregiously. I get, in, I get into trouble whenever I try to do sports uh, analogies. They have fumbled a great fumble. Because not all, Jesus has just warned them what, that Satan wants them, that they are in Satan's uh, uh, reticle. He's in, they're in Satan's sights and they are groggy they are sleepy they, 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 they seem unconcerned how could they err so grievously why would they how could they fumble such a great fumbling well jesus gives the answer he explains why they erred and in doing so he explains uh, tells us why they needed to pray and by extension beloved why we need to pray what does he say in ver- in the latter part of verse 38 why, why should you keep praying and watching that you may not come into temptation? What's the explanation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is a, we could say it's a microcosm. It is, it's a microcosm of Romans 7. It is Romans 7 in a nutshell. That is a summary of Romans 7, where Paul explains that he and, 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 and we have two laws in us. One law is the law of the mind. The law that wants to obey, the law that wants to serve and please God. Every Christian has that. But secondly, there is the law of the flesh. And that, beloved, that doesn't want to serve God. That doesn't want to please God. That doesn't want to obey God. Who does the flesh want to serve and please and obey? Self. Self. So we, every Christian has two laws. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. And they are at, they're at war with each other. They're at enmity with each other. Whereas the natural man has only the law of his flesh, the regenerated man is given a new heart. And as, as Lenski says... The new man is a complex personality. 
He's a complex personality. The unregenerate man is a simple personality. He's a sinner who wants to sin. The new man is a complex personality because he's a saved sinner who wants to please God, but he's living in the flesh that wants to please self. A complex personality. On the, on the one hand, uh, in the, part of the Christian wants to do what is good and right, and that is the spirit. That's what Jesus says right here. The spirit is willing. But there is present with every Christian who has a pulse, which I believe is almost everyone, a part that does not want to do what is good and right. It, as Romans 7.23 says, this other part wages war with the first part. It wages war with the law of the mind. 1 Peter 2.11 describes the, the second part as fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Galatians 5.17 The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. And that is why you may not do the things that you please. Lenski, Lenski adds, by calling on the disciples to watch and pray, Jesus seeks to rouse their spirits into full activity. And he does that, as I tried to argue, to prepare them for the coming hour where they will be tested as Jesus' disciples. But Jesus is seeking to rouse their spirit into full activity, but by sleeping, they're not rousing their spirits, they're yielding to the flesh. They are yielding to the flesh. And beloved, in so doing, they are setting themselves up for such a great and devastating failure. Beloved, you'll see Peter later. Peter will not see his failure as a whoopsie. Peter will not see his failure as an oopsie. He won't see it as a poor choice. He won't see it as, a, as an unwise choice. He will be devastated. Yielding to the flesh, and this is true in all areas of life, yielding to the flesh never solves problems. It only adds problems. Yielding to the flesh, letting the flesh tell you how, how to do things, and being controlled by your fleshly impulses only leads you into sin, and sin only leads you into more problems. So they're setting themselves up for a for a further failure, and we will see the fullness of that further failure in a few hours, a few hours in the text, uh, I think probably two weeks from the pulpit. But we will see a part of that further failure immediately in verses thirty nine to forty. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. So at this point, he is still, he is still wrestling. He is still uh, battling and submitting, uh, fighting for his human will to be submitted to the divine will. He is still praying, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, yet not I will, but what you will. Saying the same words. And, and likely he's gone for, uh, for another hour. I can't be dogmatic on that. And again, he came 
And this time he found them alert. They had learned their lesson. Right? What did he find this time, this second time? He found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Spirit is willing, but flesh is weak. Now, when Jesus said the spirit is willing, I, I think uh, Lenski calls this a gracious apology for their failure. I think they really wanted to obey the Lord. I think they wanted to watch and pray. I think they had the sincerest desire to do what he said and to not further disappoint him. I don't think they liked seeing the frustration and the agitation and the sadness and the sorrow in his, in his eyes as they come back and see them failing him yet again. I don't think they enjoyed that in the least bit. I think they wanted to do what's right. Their spirits were indeed willing, but their flesh was indeed weak. Remember, it's been a long night. It's been a long night preceded by a long week. Very full, very long, very bustling days of activity, getting up really early in Bethany. And perhaps if Jesus had gone off in the wee early hours of the morning to pray, they had to go find Jesus. Then they go into Jerusalem. They hike the two to three miles into Jerusalem each day. They spend the entire day there engaged with the people, interacting with the people, battling the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. These were long days full of preaching and teaching and walking, 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 and and with, with the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel on the most and greatest religious holiday season of the year. This is Passover week. Jerusalem being around 80,000 people on any given day of the year swelled up to around 3 to 4 million people of the year. That is a lot of hustle and bustle. And then there is this day beginning with who I think, remember the two men that Jesus sent out on that, on that um, uh, they, they, they followed the guy to find the upper room. I think that was Peter and John. Beginning with, with the day of finding the upper room, uh, securing the upper room, going and getting all the elements for the Passover, preparing the Passover, observing the Passover, and uh, delightfully eating the Passover. It is now very late. It, it is between 2 to 3, maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. It is a cold night. They are out in the middle of the Mount of Olives. They are on the mountainside in the middle of an olive grove. And they're not at this point, they're not walking around generating heat. They are stationary. And so we can understand their lethargy. We can understand their fatigue, their fatigue but we can't condone it. Jesus had prayed. Why couldn't they? We see that defenselessness in the last part of verse 40. They are like three deers in a headlight who have no excuse, and they did not know what to answer How could you be sleeping at a time like this? Now, as you read verse 41, I want to draw your attention to something. 
you will notice. So he, he, he let me put that on pause a second. So he, so he came a third time. So, which means he had to leave a third time and pray a third time and then return a third time. Another hour, perhaps, of agonizing prayer. He's feeling the same fatigue that they all are at this point. In addition, he has the weight of Calvary's shadow looming over him. He comes a third time and he says, are you still sleeping? Even now, are you still sleeping? Do you you see that in the first half of verse 41? Are you still sleeping? Now, after that reprimand, are you still sleeping and resting? Do you see that millimeter or two? And this may change depending on which Bible you have. Do you see that millimeter two of white space between the question mark and it? Do you see that? Give me a nod of head. The white space between resting and it is enough. That one to two millimeters of white space. That is a very small space, beloved. But I believe a colossal shift is happening in that little one millimeter white space. It is a colossal shift for both Jesus and the disciples. And that's why I'm going to title the third point, the finale. The finale. He says the rebuke, are you still sleeping and resting? Shift. It is enough. Enough. Enough of this. Now, the, the Greek has no punctuations, and we, we can't see Jesus' face. We can't hear the strain or, or, the, or the tone of his voice, but the meaning nonetheless comes across. Enough! Enough of this. Enough watching and praying. You, you guys, you have had your chance to watch and pray. You've had the opportunity three times to steal yourselves like I've been doing for what lays ahead. Enough. No more chances. The hour is here. It is not something, it is no longer something looming in the distance. It is no longer something on the horizon. It is here. Enough. No more chances. Time is up. My hour is here. I'm ready for it. You're not. And beloved, the sad part is this. Jesus gave them every opportunity after opportunity after after opportunity to be ready for this. And they have made their bed with their spiritual lethargy. Now they will have to sleep in it. And those of us who have been around the sun a few times know that there are lessons we can learn by being told and there are lessons we can learn by sleeping in the bed we've made. Right? And it's hard when that happens, isn't it? Now, opposed to their failure is Jesus' determination to march forward. For Jesus, the battle has been the battle of wills have been won. He has he's submitted himself to his father's will. He's embraced 
the appointed hour. He has prepared himself. He has steeled himself in God's faithfulness. Aaron, where are you getting that from? I would remind you, Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. That is, that is the New Testament apostles' commentary on this passage right here. Nowhere else does Jesus cry. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Mark this, to the one able to save him from death. Jesus has steeled himself in the faithfulness of God. I would remind you that Isaiah 53, perhaps the most clearest picture of Calvary in the Old Testament, has these lines in verse 10. If he would render himself, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the servant, if he would render himself a guilt offering, that is a conditional statement, here is the result statement, he will see his offspring. How could the servant see offspring? And that that is a metaphor, by the way. His disciples are his offspring. How could he see his offspring if he's rendered a, 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 a guilt offering for sin and killed? If he's dead, how can he be around to see his offering, his offspring? Put on your thinking cap. What? Yeah. Jesus saw that scripture and knows that his death is not going to be the end of the story. And again, in verse 12, he will, future tense, not a conditional statement, it is, it is a certainty, he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a huge history, uh, history buff, but I'm pretty sure that when most people died, they, they weren't around to collect the booty and enjoy the booty afterwards. Do you see how Jesus has steeled himself? He has girded himself with the faithfulness of God that if he goes through this, if he goes to the cross and he, uh, he offers himself as an atoning sacrifice to be slaughtered and killed for sin, that God is not going to leave him in the grave. Do you see Jesus stealing himself with those precious promises? I have to know that you see this. Do you see this? Okay. He has stealed himself with the faithfulness of God. And that has allowed him to embrace this hour, his, his own human will to, to avoid this hour is put in place, it's put in check, and the cup has now been placed into his hand. Look, at verse 41 says, it, the hour has come. The cup is in his hand. Stein puts it like this, the hourglass of, t- of time has turned over, the passion has begun. Judas is here. And with him come the religious leaders and the Roman cohort with their clubs and swords. They will take Jesus away. And just as Jesus said, the shepherd will be struck down and the sheepish disciples will scatter. 
this is it. Enough. No more coddling. No more pampering. No more being led by Jesus' hand. The time for the disciples to be spoon-fed by Jesus has ended because his hour has come. And that means he has to roll up his sleeves and do his cross work. Verse 41, the hour has come. No more time. And we see, the, we see Judas and the Romans coming. They are basically the Lord's Uber to Calvary. They are, they are the means by which he will be escorted or shuttled to the cross. Last part of verse 41. Behold. Look. Look for yourselves. The Son of Man is being. Present tense. Not future tense. Present tense. It's happening right now. The Son of Man is being betrayed this very moment right now as I speak into the hands of Sinners, they could, they could perhaps see the faint glow of the torches coming up the mountainside. Maybe they could hear the hushed clamor of the anywhere from 400 to 1,000 men marching up the hill. A Roman cohort, it was anywhere from four to 600 people. There were dignitaries, there were members of the Sanhedrin, there was the temple police. This is not a small elite mob. This is a large elite mob. They are here. And Jesus says, behold, look, see for yourselves. You want proof the hour is here? You want proof that your time to learn from my hand And to spend time with me, to ask me questions, to have me clarify anything that you don't understand. You want proof that, that, that your time has run out, that enough is enough? Look right there. I am being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Sinners are here for me. And that must have been unnerving, completely unnerving and devastating to the disciples because they know the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus. And, and the way the week had been going with the earlier confrontations, it, it had appeared, I know, that Jesus had gained the upper hand. The people had Jesus' back. The people were in love with Jesus, publicly acclaimed as the Messiah, publicly heralding him as the Christ, as the son of David. And it looked as if Jesus had gained the upper hand and was on the verge of defrocking and dethroning the Sanhedrin. But that was then. This is now. He is now in their grips. He has been betrayed into their hands. He says, get up. Apparently, Apparently the men are still so out of it. They are still so they are so weak in their flesh right now that they are still lying down. He says, "Get up. Let us be going, not retreating, marching forward to the crowd. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand." I'll remind you, it's between 3 and 5 or 3 or 4 in the morning. 
the busiest day of the year has just concluded, I guarantee you everyone is asleep. This late, this late at night, out here on the mountain, who else, who, who's leading this group? Who else could it be if not the betrayer, if not the one who knew where I would be? Who, who else could be leading my enemies here to this secluded spot but the one that I said would betray me? And rather than urge them to flee, he steals them to follow him in meeting his aggressors head on. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. And, he, and why, does he, why does he steal them to come with him? It's because their job as witnesses is not done. And we're going to see that next week. How should this impact us? What takeaways should we have from this narrative? I have two for you. I want you to see that weakness is present in every believer. Weakness is present in every believer J.C. Ryle said, infirmity may be found even in the best of Christians. And someone, we don't know who said this, said, even the best of men are, at, are, are men at best. Even the best of men are men at best. And what, what better proof, what clearer example do we have of that than in these three disciples in this late hour? They had the desire to obey the Lord. They didn't want to disappoint him. They didn't want to frustrate him. But as for, for even Jesus says, the spirit is willing. But what does he also say? The flesh is weak. Weakness is present in every believer. I would remind you, they, these men had the most privileged three and a half years of anyone in history. They got to walk with God day after day after day to learn from his feet, to receive food from his hand, to always have his ear. And they had the most spiritually thrilling and intimate week, which climaxed with the first Lord's Supper, followed by this hour where they were told to watch and pray with the most earnest prompting, the most earnest warning to watch and to pray, and they demonstrate they are encompassed with infirmity. The truth is, beloved, so are we. So are we. Weakness is present in every Believer, And so I would exhort you, do not be like Peter, do not be like James, do not be like John who thought, not I, not me, those guys maybe, her maybe, but not me, I'm able, I'm strong enough, I will never deny the Lord, not me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Weakness is present in every believer. Secondly, and in light of that, commit yourself to prayer. Commit yourself to prayer. Jesus said to them, and by extension to us, watch and pray. Watch and pray that temptation not 
overtake you. Watch and pray that you may not fail in temptation. Watch and pray that you may do what is good and right when your flesh and when the old man, when, when old Aaron shows up, when old Daniel rouses up, when old Kelly and old Charlie and old Jen rise up. push and pull and tug and get and and compel you to sin watch and pray jesus taught his disciples to keep on knocking to keep on seeking to keep on asking in prayer beloved the truth is we don't do that so often we so easily give up we ask If we even go to prayer to begin with, we ask for something once or perhaps twice if we are overly pious and zealous. If that. And and if heaven and earth, if we don't see heaven and earth moved, we just assume that the sovereignty of God is, well, this is how it's supposed to be. Why bother? I guess this is my lot. Be persistent in prayer. Commit yourself to prayer i would remind you jesus spent all night in prayer before he called the 12 and here we see him staying up though he's fatigued though he is weary he is persisting in prayer hour after hour after hour do you not see him persisting in prayer until he prevails in prayer do you not see that yes or no first thessalonians five seventeen: pray without ceasing Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times, when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. Commit yourself to prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we, we have seen in these two messages from this part of Mark's gospel, we have seen your humanity We've seen your divinity and your deity throughout the gospel, but no, no more, where, no, nowhere more clearly do we see your humanity and we see you prevailing on our behalf when and where we could not. Thank you for the example that you've set forward for us, but even more importantly, Lord, thank you for doing what we could not do. Thank you for being the perfect man, the the second Adam, who is fully pleasing and fully righteous in the Father's eyes and whose righteousness is given to us as a gift of faith. Thank you for your travail. Thank you for your suffering on our behalf. Amen.